All right, well, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and we are continuing in our series in the book of Acts. So grab your Bibles. Let's flip over to Acts chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor around you. They're distributed around the room on the floor. Um, Just look around and and grab one of those. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, please take that one with you. We'd love for that to be our gift to you this morning. Uh, to help you to continue to read and dig into the Word of God. So we're going over to Acts chapter 8. While you're flipping there, um, uh, let me just kind of set this up. You guys know what a means to an end is, right? You've heard that phrase, a means to an end. Um, I looked it up on Google, the, uh, the source of all true knowledge, and Google says that a means to an end is a thing that is not valued or important in itself, but it's useful in achieving an aim. So it's something that isn't really valuable in and of itself, but it is useful in achieving an aim, right? So, so the gas in your car is a means to an end, right? It has value insofar as it allows you to get where you want to go. See what I'm saying, right? Your car itself is a means to an end. If, if, if your child is sick and you need to get to where they are, your car is a means to an end. At that point, it's not saying that your car is worthless, but it's saying in that moment, what's of greater worth is getting to your child, right? And, and if the reality is, if, if, if something happened to your car, you would abandon your car to get to your child, right? The, the, the end is greater than the means. And, and so by comparison, the end is what's truly important, and the means becomes, um, in comparison, worthless. It, it has value insofar as it helps us get to where we really want to go, right? And, and so this is normal and right, right? Where we get in trouble with this is when we mistake the means for the end. See, where we get in trouble is where we mistake what's important and what's unimportant. I mean, think about it in terms of dating, right? Is dating a means or an end? You, you can take a guess. Dating, a means or an end? All right, imagine that I took Lauren out on our first date, and imagine that I killed it, right? Way back in the 80s, slick young Steve, (laughs) handsome, suave, totally had his act together, right? Took her on a super romantic date, right? Full of witty conversation, like I had kind of researched ahead of time. I knew what she liked to talk about. So I made sure that that I was read up, you know, and I I was ready to talk about Wendell Berry, you know, and, and gardening, right? And I knew the cycles and different kinds of corn, um, right? Uh, and, I, and I got her perfect food. I knew exactly what she liked to eat, right? So, so I didn't just take her out to a random nice restaurant. I took her out to the perfect restaurant that appealed to her appetites, right? We end it with a romantic walk, and we have this, like, this real personal connection happening. All right, I want to be clear, that's not exactly what happened on our first date. Um, Our first date took place in a musty library where I asked her to show me how to use a card catalog. Some of you are like, what's a card catalog? (laughs) It, it It was a wicked device of man designed purely to inflict pain. Be glad that it is now obsolete. But um, she, that was our first date. I'm like, hey, I don't know how to use this thing. So she showed me how to use it. That's what really happened. But just imagine instead that, that, that we end this perfect date thing, right? And, and, and then it's at the end and, and it's just as the conversation is, is growing quiet. You know that point, right? She's quietly looking at me, clearly attracted. She kind of has that, that quiet smile, that shy smile. And she's wondering, you know, are, are we going out again? Right? What, where, do we, where do we go from here? Right? In that moment, I'm like, yes, I nailed it. I don't even high-five her, I high-five myself. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes, and I walk away and I Instagram a picture, even though it didn't exist in the 80s. I Instagram a picture of, of the night with the hashtag perfect date. And I never call her back. And I start worrying about my next first date. Okay, means or an end. <laughs> the date is the means, right? I, I, if I did that, I'd miss my whole life with her. That's mi- mixing up the means with the end. It's, it's the end um, of dating. Its purpose is to build a relationship, right? 
The, the purpose of, of dating is to make a connection. The, the, the end is, is, is not to impress myself with how good of a dater I can be, right? The, the, the purpose of dating is to actually create real human personal connection and, uh, and see if, if it might develop into genuine human intimacy, right? Here's the thing, you guys. It can be tragic when we mix up the means with the end. When we make unimportant things the important things. See, people do this all the time, right? They do it with their jobs. And they, they end up with great careers and no real relationships to share it with. Right? The job is a means to an end. It's a way to be productive. It's a way to provide so that you can make a life. We make a mistake when we make the means the end and the career becomes our life. Right? People do it with their houses. Right? The house is a means to an end. It's a way to build a home. And yet people become obsessed with building their house and having a perfect image of their house and keeping their house in perfect order to the point that they're actually alienating and, 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 and abusing the people that they're trying to make a home with. It can be tragic when we mix up the means with the end. And it's never as tragic as when we do it in our relationship with God. When we try to make God a means to our end, we not only miss out on what we're trying to get, we miss out on everything God's trying to give. And we see this illustrated in the two stories in our text today. We're going to read a story about a guy named Simon. He's a Canaanite. And we're going to read the story of an unnamed Ethiopian eunuch. Um, And we're going to look at each of them in turn. Um, so we're going to begin by looking at the first story. It's going to be a lot of reading, so, so stick with me um, as we look at these two stories. Now, here's the thing. Our text this morning begins right after the, the martyrdom of Stephen. We looked at that last week, right? Stephen was sharing the gospel, and um, the people rose up against him. They made false accusations about him. Uh, he confronted them with the reality that Jesus is who he said he was, and that they missed it, and they got really mad and they stoned him. And we pick up in chapter 8, verse 1. All right. And Saul approved of his execution. We're going to talk more about Saul next week, um, but this is um, giving us an introduction to a very important character. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, which, by the way, was a, an act of great courage uh, because under Jewish law, somebody who was stoned was uh, uh, unclean, and to actually try to come and bury him would have brought you under the same censorship that, that led that person to be um, killed. So devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering the house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. All right, so great persecution arises in Jerusalem. It's the first time we've seen a real wave of persecution, not just from, not just leaders that are angry, but now there's a general populace that, that are basically saying, okay, these new Christians are saying things that are threatening to us. These new Christians are saying things that threaten our understanding of what makes life important. And, and, and so there's a response of, of man, we've got to get rid of these guys. We need to silence their voice. And so persecution is increasing. So what ends up happening? Um, the more vulnerable Christians in that community get scattered, right? They get pushed out of Jerusalem because that's where the, 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 um, the pinpoint or the beginning of the persecution is, is starting. And so we see guys like Philip, uh, who was a Hellenistic Jew, like Stephen was. He was one of the uh, guys that was appointed as a deacon in, uh, in Acts chapter 2. He gets pushed out from Jerusalem into the surrounding areas, and he ends up in Samaria. So take a look in verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So there's a huge response in Samaria to the preaching of the gospel. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him 
because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Pause there for a minute because I want to just make a note. So what's happening here is Philip goes down to Samaria. Down means north in this case. I know down usually means south, but anytime you left Jerusalem, they said you were going down. It's just the way it worked. And so you went down, that means up to Samaria, and he started sharing the gospel. A lot of people believed the apostles in Jerusalem heard about it, and they're like, holy cow, the Samaritans are believing. God wants them in the kingdom too. Sweet, let's go endorse this thing. So the apostles come down, lay their hands on the believers, pray for them, and they receive the Spirit of God. What you need to realize when we're reading the book of Acts is that much of what you read in here is descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words, this is history. It's describing what happened, not prescribing what should always happen from this point forward. What we find is that the farther you go through the book of Acts, the more normative it becomes for believers, the, point at the, the moment at which they believe, to be indwelt by the Spirit of God. Right? The gift of the Holy Spirit comes to those who believe in Jesus. And it becomes normative that that happens at the exact same moment. At this unique point in time, it happens at different moments. Right? This is part of the transition into this new age. Okay, so it's descriptive, not prescriptive. I want you to get that, okay? This is not normative for us today. All right, verse uh, 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. All right, pause there. That's the story of Simon. All right, Simon, let's set the context. Simon was an important person in his context, right? He lived in Samaria. He was a Samaritan and he was highly respected. Um, He was a magician. Um, Now, during this period of time, a magician was somebody who had really just learned the fine arts of, of both smoke and mirrors trickery right? There was a certain level of, of just learning how to do the sleight of hand stuff, how to do the, the trickery stuff. Um, but there's definitely an element of the dark arts demonic here as well. Like this is somebody who, they don't think of it in those terms, but, but there is power, right? And, and, and part of what they studied was how to harness um, these, these unseen forces um, and, uh, and impress people with it, right? So this dude from what we can tell, as I'm reading this and I'm just trying to study and trying to learn as much as I can from Simon by reading this text, he seems like a guy who, who loved attention and loved respect, right? He, he's out there doing all this magic. Why is he doing it? Because he loves the praise of people. He, he loves to impress people. He loves it when people are impressed by him, right? He, he, his nickname, after all, is the power of God, right? That's his nickname, right? Kind of like an ex-pro wrestler, right? Like, my name's The Rock, right? He's, my name's The Power of God. He's just trying, he's this, this sense of, man, I am impressive, right? And, and, and that's my nickname, be impressed by me, the power of God. You're like, Steve, I thought the Jews hated magic. They did. They did. And there's a lot in the Old Testament about warning God's people about magic. But they also hated the Samaritans. Um, this was a region uh, that the Jews totally avoided. They would go way out of their way, never to set foot in Samaria, um, and obviously to stay away from people like this. But the gospel had commissioned Philip 
to go to Jerusalem and, and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? The gospel is, is not ethnocentric. It's not about a certain people or a certain kind of group. It, it crosses racial lines. It crosses socioeconomic lines. It, it crosses cultural lines. And so we see Philip boldly going into areas that Israelites would normally avoid uh, in order to, to share the gospel. Now, why did they hate this area so much? Um, primarily because they, they were competing, right? Uh, Samaritans were um, the, the, the descendants of the northern tribes of Judah and Gentiles. So when Judah and Israel split in the Old Testament, Israel got taken away into Babylonian captivity. Judah didn't. Judah stayed in the land, and, and these northern tribes intermarried with Gentiles, and they, they basically set up a competing religious system. There are Samaritans today. They still exist um, in the land. And, and they have a very, they identify themselves as Jewish, but they have a competing Jewish. They think they're the true religion. They had their own mountain. They had their own temple. They had their own worship system. And, um, and so uh, they were never reintegrated uh, into the, uh, the mainstream Judaism. And the Jews couldn't stand to the Samaritans because of it, right? To them, the Samaritans were worse than, than dogs. That's what they called the Gentiles or the non-Jewish nations. They're dogs. Uh, the Samaritans were, were worse. So Philip is a Samaritan, is a magician, and he hears the, or excuse me, um, Simon is, is a, a magician and a Samaritan. And, uh, and he sees Philip. Philip shows up. He's preaching the good news about Jesus. He's, he's performing these miraculous signs, which are, are part of, of what's happening, right? This is God showing up and basically validating the message. The messengers are coming and saying, look, Jesus rose from the dead. And then during this period of time, it was, it was during this period of time, it was normative that, that God showed up with these miraculous signs as a way to say, listen to what they're saying. Pay attention to their words. My power validates their, their message, right? So Philip um, just kind of gets sucked up in the crowd's response. He ends up following Philip. He ends up getting baptized. From what I can tell, as I read through this passage, Philip's really kind of a pleasant guy, right? I mean, we think of magicians, we're like, oh, he must have been wearing a dark trench coat and been moody. And no, I mean, this dude like seemed really pleasant, right? He, he strikes me as, as probably a, a real friendly guy, a pleasant guy, a nice guy. In fact, when Philip shows up, we don't have any indication that he's like jealous, right? Even though Philip is doing signs of great power, and, and that's kind of Simon's gig. Simon's not like, ooh, man, I'm, I better get competitive with you. I better not like you. You're infringing. No, he actually starts following Philip, right? He, he actually gets baptized. He's like, I want to be near this guy, right? He's not threatened. He's excited. He's eager. He's the kind of guy that would come up to you after a church service, after you preached a sermon, and he'd be like, man, that was so good. Dude, you are so encouraging. You are so gifted, right? And, and, and you're like, yeah, thanks, man. You're the kind of guy I want to have around here. I, I want a whole room full of Simons, you know, eager and excited and, 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 and happy and pleasant, right? I mean, that would be so cool to have an entire church full of pleasant people. That would be awesome, I know I'd have to be the first to go, but um, I'm saying that there's a certain level of motivation that, that you know, this is the kind of guy that, that on the surface um, you want around, right? And honestly, I'm just going to be honest, I think there's a lot of pastors today that work very, very hard to keep this kind of person in their church. They're thinking, how can I preach the right kind of sermons? How can I give the right kind of messages to, to keep this kind of person around? And I, we'll unpack that a little bit. But here's the thing, when he gets to Peter... <laughs> And he approaches Peter. Peter doesn't seem that interested, right? When he sees the apostles laying their hands on these new believers and the gift of the Holy Spirit is being given, which is at this point accompanied by, by signs, right? So they were probably speaking in foreign languages or doing other things that made it clear that they were receiving the Spirit. He thought, man, I, I want some of that. I want some of that. So he did what seemed natural to him. He offered to buy it right? In the world of magic, that's what you did. Everybody had their trade secrets. Everybody had their, their trade arts, and, and, and they were valuable. And so he came to them, and he said, look, I know what you're doing is really valuable. I know what you're doing is, is worth a lot, so I'm willing to sacrifice to get it. Could I, could I pay you for this? Could I sacrifice in order to, to get some of this? 
Here's the thing, he thought he would get power, but instead he, he got a very stern rebuke. Um, and he's left shaken and fearful. At the end, he's like, man, Peter, will you pray to the Lord that nothing of what you've just described will come on me? I mean, he's, there's, there's fear in his voice, right? He's, he's left shaken at the end of this. Why would you rebuke a nice guy for an honest mistake? Why, why would you rebuke a guy who, who is really just like operating in the world that he understands according to the, the, uh, the codes that he's been trained up with? All right, we'll come back to that. But first, I want us to take a look at our next story. Because in our next story, we're introduced to a very different character with a very different set of motivations. All right, so starting in verse 26, we're going to read about Philip, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. In 26, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he's leaving Samaria, going down through Jerusalem and south of there to a road that leads farther south. Uh, This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep that was led to slaughter and like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture, and he told them the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. All right, so obviously the Spirit of God's doing some crazy stuff with Philip. Not going to get into that a whole lot. The Spirit of God does crazy stuff. That's all I'm going to say. Um, and, and so Philip is um, led to have this crazy conversation, right? It wasn't him st- having this great, you know, study of missiology, understanding his context. It's like he just follows the Spirit. The Spirit leads him to this chariot, and inside this chariot is a dude. Uh, and, and what do we know about this guy? We don't know his name, but we knew, do know that he is an Ethiopian, um, which means he would have come from the far south. He would have come from really what was considered the edge of the world to the people in Jerusalem um, and, and really to the Roman Empire. He was considered, uh, the, you know, when, when Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth, this guy comes from the ends of the earth in, in their estimation, okay? He, uh, he came from an area that, that is called Ethiopia. It's not modern Ethiopia, um, it's, it's near there, but it's actually a little bit north. This was actually a reference to the Nubian kingdom, sometimes called Cush, uh, in the Bible and in other ancient texts. It would be southern Egypt and northern Sudan. Uh, it's a very lush area uh, along the Nile, um, and it was an area of great wealth and, and influence. We're also told that he's a eunuch, which means that he had been castrated probably at a young age. Um, and, and he did that in preparation for his career as a treasurer for um, the queen, uh, Candace. Uh, treasurers and other high position influ- uh, uh, officials were often made eunuchs um, because the idea behind that was it made them single-minded in their devotion, made them single-minded in their desire to, to be faithful to their task and faithful to um, their high calling as opposed to being conflicted by um, normal uh, human male desires. And, uh, and so that's what we know about him, right? Uh, he came to Israel to worship. We know that. 
that, that he actually came to Israel. We don't know how he heard about Judaism. We don't know how he heard about the God of, of the Jews, but we know he came to worship. So he would be considered a God-fearer. That's what they called these folks back in the day. They were non-Jewish people who, who wanted to worship the Jewish God. And so they were called God-fearers. Sometimes they were called proselytes. Um, but he would have had very limited ability even in being a proselyte because he was castrated, because he was a eunuch. He would have been excluded from every form of temple activity. Um, but we know that, that he came and that he was a person of influence, power, and even of quite a bit of affluence, right? He's riding in his own chariot, which is a sign of great wealth. We know that he has a high position in a very wealthy country. And we know that he's reading the scroll of Isaiah. Now, we're thinking, okay, that's no big deal, right? It was just on his Kindle. No, not really. In this day and time, you, people didn't own books, right? Scrolls were incredibly expensive. They, they might at the local synagogue have a collection of scrolls, but people didn't own their own because, because it had to be handmade, all of it, right? The parchment had to be handmade and dried. The ink had to be handmade. Then, then you had to have a professional scribe actually copy the text letter by letter by letter by letter. It was an incredibly arduous, time-consuming um, process, and these scrolls were considered great treasures. They were, they were incredibly expensive to own on a personal level. But he was reading a scroll. So he was in his own chariot. He owns his own scroll. Um, and uh, when Philip comes alongside the carriage, he hears him reading from Isaiah chapter 53. That was a great setup. <laughs> um, and he shares with the eunuch about Jesus, right? Isaiah 53 is what's called the suffering servant chapter. It's a chapter in the Old Testament that predicts Jesus um, in, in radical detail, um, and in this passage, these verses specifically, it says, he was led like a sheep to the, to the slaughter. And, um, and this guy um, says, who is this? Who is this? And Philip explains Jesus. And, and the Ethiopian eagerly hears the message and believes. And his first question coming out of it is, what, what prevents me from being baptized? They're on a very arid land, driving through the desert. They find a pool of water. It says they go down into the water. It, it's a pool. Um, and, and so Philip has the great opportunity of baptizing um, the very first um, person from the far reaches of the earth, right? Um, fascinating to me that, that the first non-Jewish convert, other than the Samaritan who's right in that realm, is, is a black man from um, Nubia, right? It's beautiful, and, and, and Philip has the opportunity of baptizing him, and he becomes really the forerunner of us, all the other non-Jewish people who, who would become believers in Jesus. Um, now, what's cool about this is, is after he hears the good news about Jesus, his first question isn't, hey, um, what's this going to do for me? His first question is, how can I celebrate that he loves me and that I want to follow him? Oh, baptism. <laughs> can we do that thing like now? Like there's, there's water right now. Can I do it right here? And they do. So we have two very different stories that I think are instructive for us. And I want to draw some principles out of them for us. First of all, Simon, um, the magician, maybe a guy that seems a world away to us, right? He's a magician. He's, he's in the Samaria. He's, he's in this ancient culture. But I think he may have a whole lot more in common with us than, than on first glance. Um, he seems to be an optimist and an opportunist, which means he would have made a great American. You know what I'm saying? Like he's really optimistic about what's in front of him, and he's very opportunistic about using whatever's at hand to get ahead, right? What do I have? It's not a question of what I don't have, but what do I have? And how do I use what I have to, to get ahead? How do, I, how do I make a life? How do I pull myself up by my own bootstraps? How do I, how do I make a life, right? He has a can-do attitude and a zest for making the most of life. He isn't a whiner, right? When somebody else shows up and does what he does better than he does it. He doesn't just go cry in the corner. He, he doesn't start a blog trying to character assassinate people that, that do things better than him, right? What does he do? He, he's like, man, I can learn from this. I, I need to get closer to this, right? When he saw someone doing it better, he, he wanted to learn. He saw their power and he wasn't jealous. He was excited. See, the problem wasn't that he was jealous of their power. His problem was in the way he viewed power. 
His power is what made him important. It was how he built his glory. It was how he made himself feel loved. See, I think everybody has their own glory. It's kind of a weird way of putting it, but I think we all have our glory. It's that thing that, that, that we look to that, that makes us important, that makes us unique and different, that makes us worthwhile. It's that thing that when we're mentally putting together our resume, right? On your resume, do you, do you always put, you know, where you got fired and all your worst work experiences? No. What do you put on your resume? All the good stuff, right? All the good stuff. Okay, I skipped those three jobs. I want to put that one because that's the one that has the good experience and I know I get a good recommendation, right? So when we put together our mental resume, what we're doing is putting, putting together our glory. What are the things that you put on your, your resume, right? On his resume was a guy, I'm, I'm creative, I, I can do things other people can't do. I have these secret arts they don't have. I can impress people. And when I impress people, they like me. When I impress people, they respect me. When I walk down the street, people know my name. Not only do they know my name, they know my nickname, right? I'm so special, I have a nickname, right? I'm like one of these celebrities. I don't go by both names. I go by one name, right? Like Bono, Right? No, that's Paul. No, it's Bono, right? Nobody knows who Paul Houston is. Nobody knows that. Bono, right? This is a guy that, that is so well-known that he's got this, this public persona, and he finds his identity in it. What's your glory? What do you lead out with? What, what is it? I mean, is it, is it could be anything, right? For him, it, this is what makes him feel loved. Simon was attracted to the gospel because it seemed to offer him more of what he already wanted. Right? He heard this message of the gospel and he watched this display of power. And he's like, man, this is really right in line with what I value. This is really right in line with my, with my family values and, and with, with, my, with my personal values and with my hope and ambition and, and agenda for my life. I think I'm going to hook myself up with this stuff because I think it's going to help me get to go where I want to go. It seemed to offer the ability to demonstrate power and get approval. See, here's the thing, you guys. Simon was reducing Jesus as a means to an end. That's what was going on. He was reducing Jesus to a means to an end. And this is why Peter rebuked him so sharply, right? Simon showed up and said, look, I'm successful. If I become a follower of Jesus, I'll become more successful. I'm happy. If I become a follower of Jesus, I'm going to become more happy. Um, I, I'm, I'm uh, um, kind of famous. If I become a follower of Jesus, man, I, I think it's going to expand my fame a little bit. I, th- I think it'll actually make people think more highly of me. I'm affluent. I've, I've been able to make a pretty good living. If I become a follower of Jesus, I think God's really going to bless my finances. I, I, think, I think I'm actually going to be able to do better, right? I have a good life, but I want my best life now. Jesus wasn't the goal. He was a means to an end. See, when we make Jesus a means to an end, we make him worthless compared to what we really want. You get that? Right? You'd say, oh, no, 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 Jesus isn't worthless. Just like your car isn't worthless, right? But, but when your real goal is to get to your child, your car becomes worthless to that goal. You'll abandon your car to get to what you really want. It's all by comparison. When Jesus is a means to an end, what you're saying, he's worthless compared to what I really want. What I really want is over here. He's just my way to get it. My happiness is the goal. Your sacrifice is the means. There's a quote in your bulletin. Um, Go ahead and grab that. I want you to take a look at it. There's a quote in your bulletin by Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York. Uh, He's written a lot of things, highly influential. Many of you have probably heard of him. Many of you have probably read his books because he's very smart. And I like to quote smart people. And so um, take a look at this because I think he just captures it very well. This is from uh, his commentary on the book of Mark, King's Cross. This is what he says. If you say, I'll obey you, Jesus, if my career thrives, if my health is good, if my family is together, then the thing that's on the other side of that if is your real master, your real goal. But Jesus will not be a means to an end. 
He will not be used. If He calls you to follow Him, He must be the goal. So let me just ask you, what are you tempted to put on the other side of that if? We're all tempted to do it. What are you tempted to put on the other side of that if? Lord, I'll follow you if. In what area are you tempted to use Jesus as a means to an end instead of love Jesus because He first loved you? What is your glory? What are you tempted to use God as a means to that end? And then let me ask you this. Would you allow someone to use your friendship? Would you allow someone to use your love as a means to an end? If you found out somebody was getting near to you, wanting to get to know you, spend time with you, flattering you, saying all the positive things, really a pleasant and friendly person. And then you find out that, that really they're just doing it so they can get ahead in their career or to meet people who are maybe a little more interesting than you, but you're the pathway to get there. How does that make you feel? Are you content being a means to an end? The answer is no, and, and neither is God. God will not be our means to an end. God's reached out to us in love because He wants to provoke our hearts to love Him in response. That is the central problem in the human condition and the central solution to all of our problems. You want to know what the real solution is to humankind? It's not electing the right politician. It's not getting the right party in power. It's hearts broken by love that learn once again to love. He's not going to be content simply allowing us to, to get what we want at His expense, right? He sent Jesus to free us in love, not to become more enslaved to our self-love. And God will not allow us to use Jesus as a means to our own ends. That would be the most unloving thing He could do, right? I mean, seriously, if He allowed us to do that, that would be like saying, yeah, I'm going to give you even stronger bars in which you can make yourself prison. <laughs> he wants to free us, not enslave us to our self-love and our small kingdoms and our weak and, and, uh, and illusionary glory. So Peter rebukes Simon, but I want you to see that's an act of love. When Peter rebukes Simon, it's not Peter being angry at Simon or disgusted with Simon or angry. It's, it's Peter looking at Simon and his heart is breaking and he's like, dude, all the world's riches are laid in front of you and, and, and you want power? The love of God has been open to you in the person of Christ and you want more people to simply respect you when you walk down the street? All the riches of God are available to you in Christ. And you want a little bit more money in the bank? You are in the gall of bitterness, man. You are so deceived. You are so locked up in this, this broken, self-centered view of the world. You can't even see the great riches that are laid in front of you. If you don't wake up, you're going to die. You're going to be destroyed with your silver, with your money, with your earthly treasures. As temporary and as weak as they are, you're going to be with them. And what a tragedy that's going to be because in front of you is an invitation of eternal worth. Simon leaves him shaken. And I hope asking good questions. We don't know what ends up happening with Simon. We don't know the condition of his heart. We don't know what happens to him after this. His final statement um, leaves me with both confusion and hope. He says, pray to the Lord that what you say won't happen to me. It seems like he's shaken, like, like his cage got rattled, and, and maybe he really is going to start considering life a little bit differently. But at the same time, it's pretty clear his hope isn't in Jesus. Pray to your God that what you say won't happen to me.
He's not talking about, he doesn't speak as somebody who has a personal relationship with God through the work of Jesus. He doesn't speak as somebody who has been made alive by faith in Jesus. He speaks about as somebody who came into this circle of community and sees it more like a club than a relationship. So I don't know what happened to him. I do know this, the Ethiopian eunuch shows us a better way. I think it's quite interesting that he was reading the scroll of Isaiah when Philip shows up. Um, Why Isaiah? Of all the things he could have purchased, all the scrolls he could have purchased in um, Jerusalem, why did he pick Isaiah? To help us frame this, I I think there may be a reason the eunuch was reading Isaiah specifically. Like when he went to the shop and and he's looking around and he obviously has money and he's looking to buy a scroll, I think the shopkeeper was like, hey, I think you might want to read Isaiah. I see you're a eunuch. Not that he actually sees it, but it was obvious because he was a treasurer from Ethiopia, right? And so he's like, I think you might be interested in, in, in Isaiah. You know why? Take a look at this. This is from Isaiah 56. Um, this is one of the unique and powerful promises in Isaiah that speaks directly to a eunuch, right? Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. So if you're not Jewish, don't be afraid of that, right? Isaiah's comforting you. If you're not Jewish, Don't freak out, man. Just because you're not Jewish doesn't mean you can't be part of my people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. I don't need to explain that. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Holy cow. (laughs) For a eunuch, man, that's a pretty cool promise, right? This guy can't have kids. In other words, his line stops with him. There is no legacy, right? In this culture, that that, that means there, there is no ongoing name for him. And God says, look, man, when you become part of my people, I'm gonna give you a monument in my house, better than sons and daughters. You'll have a name that lives on for all eternity. I'll give you a glory that is so much greater than a big, prosperous family. I'm going to give you wealth and power and a name. You're going to be in my family, man. It's an incredible promise. Pretty attractive, right? But what I love is when Philip shows up, that's not what the eunuch starts out with, right? He doesn't say, hey, tell me how to get these blessings, Here's an incredible promise that I want to get the blessings from. How do I get there? How do I, how do I, how do I get this monument? How do I make it bigger? <laughs> See, he may have started reading Isaiah because he hoped to get something from God, but by the time he got here, he wasn't even thinking about himself anymore. He wasn't thinking about his needs, his glory, his happiness, his lack of children. He wasn't thinking about that stuff at all. In verse 34, the first question he asks is this, and the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? Who's this passage talking about? Right? He was reading out of Isaiah 53. It's a passage in the Old Testament that that predicts Jesus in very great detail. If you've never spent time in Isaiah 53, I highly recommend you do. It's an incredible passage that predicts the suffering servant and talks about Jesus being pierced for our transgressions and being buried in the tomb of a wealthy man. And, and it predicts in great detail exactly what happened to Jesus. Jesus is the suffering servant. And the verses the eunuch quotes are from Isaiah 53, right? When he says that he was led like a sheep to the slaughter and he didn't open his mouth, that's Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. He had just read verses 4 through 6 the previous verses. All right, let me throw those up there for context. Take a look at this. This is what he had just read. He sang praise songs to Jesus. (laughs) And then he finally got here. All right, so Isaiah 53, this is what he says. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
See, the eunuch wasn't sitting in his carriage thinking, man, I love myself. How do I make my life better? He was reading this and he was shaken and he was saying, who is this? Who did this? Who loves like this? And what does it mean? So his first question to Philip is who? Who did this? You know what? The eunuch didn't see Jesus as a means to an end. You know why? Because his vision was so filled with the crazy love of God, he forgot himself. When he heard the news that that this was Jesus, that Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserved to die, that he took our iniquities, he took our chastisement in our place that we might be made alive. Even though we're like sheep and we often go astray, he's the good shepherd who calls us back and then lays down his life for the sheep. When he heard about that kind of love, he wasn't asking, how do I get more money? He wasn't asking, how do I get ahead in my career? He wasn't asking, how do I get that monument? He was asking, who is this that loves like that? He was saying, I want more of that love. That's the real treasure of life. You, Jesus, are the real treasure of life. So let's be honest. We are a culture of Simons, right? He was the pre-American. Um, He was just figuring out how to use what he had to get ahead. He showed initiative, ingenuity, and was motivated by ambition. Nothing wrong with those things until they framed his relationship with God. God became one more tool, one more means to get his end. He already had, right? What he wanted, he just wanted more. He had the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then he came to God, and he's like, sweet, I think this actually helps me in my pursuit. God was the way to get there. The problem is that Jesus didn't say he was the way to life. He said he was life. He himself, not the pathway to life, but he himself is life. He didn't say that he would give you what you need for liberty. What he said is where my spirit is, there's freedom. His presence is freedom. He's not the pathway to freedom. He is freedom. He didn't say, I'll give you what you want so you can be happy. He said, in my presence is joy and joy everlasting. He said, I am what you really want. My love is what your appetites really desire. My love is what actually fulfills If we approach a Simon, how do we become the eunuch? <laughs> we have to admit we're Simon to begin with. And then we have to approach God like the eunuch did. We have to fill our vision, not with what God can give us, but with who God is. And set our desires not on how God is going to enrich us or change our lives or or make our lives better, but fill our visions with the reality that, that He is the source of all that is beautiful and glorious and fulfilling and satisfying. That He is the manifestation of love. Because here's the thing, you guys. It is in being woken up to how we're loved that we learn to love. And it's in learning to love that we actually get the things we truly desire. All that wealth and all that information and all that glory and all that ambition and all that money, it's trying to feed an appetite it can never feed, which is why it's never enough. God's not going to bless that pursuit. He's going to free us from that pursuit. We need to be a people who fill ourselves and fill our vision with a God who loves us to the point that it awakens within us a responding love to God a humility toward God, a responsiveness toward God that says to God, you're not my way to get what I want. You are what I want. You're not going to give me treasure. You are my treasure. And as we get him, we get everything else 
with him. All right, I'm going to post some reflection questions on the screen, ask you to pray and um, respond to God, and um, let God speak to your heart. We're going to share communion in a moment. We'll introduce that in a moment. Let me pray for us. We'll go into our time of response. Father, we thank you that um, you are infinitely beautiful, infinitely good, infinitely satisfying, that you are the true source of all the good gifts you've given us. And Lord, our hearts are easily deceived into thinking your gifts are what we really want instead of the source. And we start looking to the things you've made to do for us what only you can do and to be for us what only you can be. Lord, I thank you that you don't get tired of us. You don't grow weary of our constant struggle with this. And even as Simon wasn't destroyed in that moment but was invited, Lord, you don't destroy us, you invite us to be loved, to just be loved. And in being loved, to learn to love that our hearts might be changed, that life may no longer be a competition. We may see it as community, no longer about building our own kingdoms, but celebrating yours. Not about creating our own security, but resting in your love. Father, awaken within us stronger, deeper, more powerful appetites that would become restless within us. Make our hearts restless until they learn to rest in you. That we wouldn't be satisfied with the shadow. We would want the real thing. You guys, we're going to share communion in a moment. Let's just take a moment and pray.